Welcome to Mosaic Podcasts. We hope you enjoy the following recording from Mosaic Church Leeds, based in the United Kingdom. For more podcasts and information on Mosaic Church, please visit mosaic-church.org.uk. Thank you for listening. Okay, our reading is from Nehemiah. Um, we're reading from chapter 5. We're going to read verses 1 to 8. Okay. Now, the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their Jewish brothers. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous in order for us to eat and stay alive. We must get grain. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our countrymen, and though our sons are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you are exacting usury from your own countrymen. So I called them together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have brought back our Jewish brothers who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your brothers only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could not find anything to say. Great. Thanks, Emily. Morning, everyone. Great. If you don't know me, my name's Dave. Uh, I lead the North Gathering here with Matt. And I've got a tight pair of trousers on, which means I can't get that in to that section. Steady, steady. So uh, we're continuing our series in uh, the book of Nehemiah today, and to catch you up in case you've missed any of the weeks or if you're just joining us for the first time, um, this is basically what's going on in the story. It's set in the city of Jerusalem about 430 BC, and um, the city had been attacked and the walls that were around the city that were meant to protect it, make it safe, had been broken down. And so the city is in ruins and it's, it's not a safe place to live. And so God gives a man called Nehemiah the task and the vision to rebuild the city walls of Jerusalem, to make this city a safe and inhabitable place once again. And we've seen Nehemiah through this kind of first four chapters. His heart is burdened for the city. It's burdened for his fellow Jewish people. He's a prayerful man as he's kind of prepared for his task. He's taken big steps of faith to make this project possible. He's emerged as this very strong but servant heart hearted leader and when opposition has come against him and the people around this task of building the wall he's reminded the people that their God is behind them it's it's God who's given them the vision to rebuild the walls and he is a great and awesome God and he will fight for them so they can take courage And we just heard chapter 5, and in chapter 5, the focus of the story kind of shifts a little bit. It turns away from the the wall building and onto the internal workings of the city, and specifically how the poor in the city are being cared for. 
and the question of how are the rich and the privileged Jews, the elite, treating the poverty-stricken working class. And Matt, right at the beginning of this series, spoke about um, Nehemiah being a picture of a sword and a spade, a sword in the sense of it was God's people battling to uh, rebuild the city, but also battling to make it a place that would be a blessing to the nations of the world. But it was also a building thing. It was, uh, they were uh, to literally rebuild the walls, but it was also rebuilding their nation, their society. And chapter 5 is very much on the building side of things. It's looking at the internal workings of that group of people and saying, how is our society doing? How is the nation doing? How are the people of God doing at living out the commands of God that he'd given them hundreds of years before? And for us, I think Nehemiah chapter 5 speaks really directly to us today because most of us in the room are going to be among the richest 5% of the global population uh, and with, even within the UK on the whole we are going to be the more educated, more professional, more middle class, more privileged and more well-off group of people. And this chapter, it helps us ask the question, how does God want us as the rich and the privileged to care for the underprivileged globally, nationally, and within Leeds? How are we to use what God has blessed us with to care for those who are without at the moment? How do we work individually, but also how do we work as a church and how do we work as the North Gathering to show that the God we believe in is a God of generosity, of compassion, and of justice? So what we're going to do is we're going to work through this section of the story, and really, I just want to ask three simple questions of the text. Firstly, what's going on? It's not the most uh, easy text to understand what's happening. Uh, so we want to look at what situation is Nehemiah facing and also what situation do we face as the church in the UK today and as the church in uh, Leeds today. Secondly, what can we learn from Nehemiah's response? So how, how does Nehemiah respond when he sees injustice happening, what happens in his heart, because I think Nehemiah represents for us a really godly response when we see poverty and injustice. And thirdly, what does this mean for us today? How are we to respond to this story? So firstly, what's going on? Well, in the chapter, the bigger picture is the nation is a time of national unity around the project of rebuilding the walls, but simultaneously at a time of national crisis because there is an extreme famine in the land. There's poverty, so there's not enough food and there's not enough money in the nation. And in fact, the nation's task of rebuilding the wall is exacerbating the famine and the poverty because it's taking men out of the fields and putting them onto the wall, so food production is dropping, and the men don't get paid for rebuilding the walls, so wages are dropping as well. So food, down, food is down and wages are down as well. Just to kind of bring it home a little bit, between 1940 and 1954, there was food rationing in the UK. Most of us won't have been alive for that. I think Matt was, but... Yeah. There's... <laughs> Cheap shot, I know, I know. There was, so basically, there's just not enough food during that time because of the nation's war efforts against Nazi Germany. And the, the nation was united in its war effort, but simultaneously facing crisis of there not being enough food. So at its peak, a typical family with four children would have had what's in this picture 
to live on for a week. Now, I just look at that and go, where's the meat? And why are there so many vegetables? Why, why are there so many vegetables? And I look at it and go, okay, for a family of four for a week, that just doesn't look like enough food. It doesn't look like enough food for me for like three or four days, bearing in mind that big box at the back will just get chucked in the bin straight away. <laughs> But if we just keep that picture up, for most of God's people in Nehemiah chapter 5, that would have looked like a feast compared to what they have at this time. The lack of food is so severe, much more severe than it was in the UK during that period. And it's so severe, people are taking extreme measures to survive. So let's take a little bit of a closer look. Verse 1 said, Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. So two things to note. One, it's a mass outcry. So this isn't just a minority group saying we don't have enough. The nation is in uproar. It's so extreme that their wives are there. Not a big deal for our culture, but for that culture, for the wives to come out and vocally raise their voice and say the situation is not good showed how bad things were because the wives would normally stay at home and wouldn't have a public voice. But they're so enraged by what's happening. They're on the streets as well saying this is not right. And the second thing is it's a cry of civil disharmony because one group of Jews is crying out against another group of Jews, against their fellow Jews. So this is, this is civil unrest and this is a real threat to the completion of the project of rebuilding the walls. And we see three different groups that are in difficulty. In verse 2 it says, some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. We've got big families. In order for us to eat and stay alive, showing how bad the famine was, we must get grain. So this first, food, this first group, they don't own their own land, and so they need to buy grain in order to feed their families. They didn't produce grain themselves. The men are working on the walls so they don't get paid, and the wages that w- the women and the older children were receiving from working the land owned by the richer Jews is just not enough. So this first group just aren't paid enough to buy food to feed their families. So they're quite a simple group. Verse 3, others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields and our vineyards and our homes to get grain during the famine. So this second group, they do own some land, but it's not producing enough food, and so they don't and and they don't have enough money to buy the extra grain in that they need. Because they don't have enough money, they're mortgaging their land, their property, in, in order to get more money in to buy more food. And the thing is, the likelihood is they'll never get enough money to buy their land back. And so the wealthier Jews are buying it all up. The wealthier, the wealthier are getting wealthier and wealthier as the poor are getting poorer and poorer. And then the third group, the most complex, verses 4 and 5, still others were saying, we have had to borrow money to pay the king's taxes on our fields and vineyards. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have had to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. So this third group is like an extension of the second group. They had once owned land, but they've mortgaged it all in order to get money to pay the taxes to the Persian king who kind of ruled over the whole of the land. 
And in fact, they've ended up in such great debt that they can't afford to get out of it. They can't feed their families. And so they've taken an extreme measure, which is to give their children into what was called debt slavery. And this was a provision in God's law for those in absolute extreme poverty. Basically, the family would give their children as a way of paying back some of the money that they owed to the people that they owed money to. And it was also a way of making making sure their children at least would be provided for. They would at least have food on their table. But you can imagine that's a desperate last resort to not have enough money or enough food that your very children, you're saying, I have to give you away to keep you alive. And the result is this group have no land, they have no money, they still don't have enough food, they're losing their children, they're stuck in a cycle of extreme poverty, they're just completely powerless. So what is going on? What's the big picture? Well, the big picture is this is a divided nation. This is a nation where the wealthy landowning elite are getting richer and more powerful, while the poorer working class Jews are losing their power, getting more hungry, poorer and more in need. And I would just want to say, doesn't our nation bear quite a lot of striking similarities to the situation that's happening here? And one of the responsibilities of the church, church big C, church UK-wide, worldwide, is to be aware, UK-wide especially, to be aware of our nation's situation. We are to know and engage with what is going on in the UK. We are, the UK is the ninth richest country in the world, and yet last year there were 445 food banks that are run by the Trussell Trust alone, so there are a lot more besides those run by the Trussell Trust. But last year they gave out over a million emergency food parcels, which was a 20% increase on the year before, and a third of that food was going to children. So we're the ninth richest country in the world, and there were at least one million occasions when families didn't have enough money to eat last year. That's crazy. That's a divided nation. We are a divided nation. Across the UK, over 8 million people are living with serious debt. And half of them have had to give up basic necessities like food and heating at some point in order to keep up with their repayments. And at the same time, the richest 1,000 families in the UK have more than doubled their wealth in the last five years to over £545 billion. That's a divided nation. We are a divided nation. And the church's role in this divided nation is to be a light in that darkness. It's to be a countercultural people. It's to be a provocative witness. Our role is to stand up for change, to display a better way, to display godly values, and to bring change to the lives of people in the UK. I've, I've watched a lot of political speeches recently, so I'm like, I want to like grip the stand and do it like a, that. Oh, yeah. Am I tough in us? Oh, come on. That was a great joke. Oh, forget it. We're moving on. Two of the prominent ways, two of the prominent ways that the church in the UK at the moment is standing up and bringing a change is through the work of Food Bank and Christians Against Poverty. Um, and as a gathering, I just want to say that we are joining with uh, a number of other churches in the north of Leeds to become a collection point to provide food for the four food bank distribution centres that are across kind of our area in the north of Leeds. And so we uh, are bringing back out the lime green bucket. And so each week, this is going to be in the foyer. 
And so you'll be able to bring food and drop it off into this bucket and we'll make sure it gets to the distribution centers. So one really easy thing that we can do is on your way out, if you just read the small blue kind of list on this side of the uh, laminated thing, that tells you the, the foods that are most needed by the food bank distribution centers. So why not read it and pick one item on it and say, I'll just buy that every week and I'll stick it in the bucket. A dead easy way to help families and children across the north of Leeds who are in need. And there were thousands, thousands of food parcels handed out last year in our part of the city. So the north is the rich part, theoretically, but there are thousands of people who don't have enough food in this part of the city, and we can make a difference. The second thing is, as a church, we run um, a Christians Against Poverty job club down in the south of Leeds, and so far... Um, 50 people have connected with that job club and uh, been helped to either write a CV or prepare for an interview, prepare to get back into work. And five of those people are now connected to the South Gathering. And a few of those people have actually become Christians and got baptised down in the south of Leeds. And it's so exciting to see a really practical solution to their problems leading to them being awakened to spiritual truth. So we're feeding them kind of physically and spiritually as well. And we've got a lot of people in the North Gathering who work for Christians against against poverty, I'm sure they've asked you for money at some point. And there's a very good reason why they've asked you for money, because it's a phenomenal charity that does amazing work around the UK. And I've asked Mark Cook, who works for Christians Against Poverty, just to come up and share one of the stories from the people that they've worked with. So I'll hand over to Mark for a couple of minutes. Great, yeah, thanks. So um, obviously... I do work for CAP. I manage our southeast region of debt centres. And yes, I do do that from Bradford. So I've been down there for two weeks. Um, but the story I want to share today is actually someone uh, who has attended one of our job clubs. And um, it's a guy called Ed. That's not his real name. And it's not Ed Miliband. Um, <laughs> and, sorry. Um, <laughs> So the reason we started job clubs and our cat money course and also our release groups is because we want to look at tackling the, the causes of debt as well as um, debt itself. Um, so, and this year alone, we're going to see over two and a half families going debt free, which is awesome, as well as over a thousand people coming to faith um, in Christ through the work we do. Two and a half thousand families going debt free. Two and a half families debt free, yeah. <laughs> Two and a half thousand. There you go. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I want to talk about Ed. And so, Ed had really been struggling to find work for quite some time, um, and he was really low about it, and he felt that no one was out there to help him. Uh, so, once the CAP Job Club started, uh, his local benefit office referred him to them. And Ed started going along uh, in May last year and had been pretty much going every week since then. Uh, he got involved in everything and uh, Gradually, over the weeks, he started to talk with them about God and faith, which was awesome. He, uh, he was invited to church many times, but he never made it along. Um, but then in September last year, he was invited to do the Alpha course. And another guy from the job club, who was already a Christian, said he would go along with Ed and do it too. So they went along. Uh, Ed enjoyed Alpha, and he started to bring his son along as well. And uh, uh, about halfway through, his son started attending as well. So he began to talk openly uh, in the job club about what they were discussing in Alpha uh, and his thoughts on it all. Uh, during some one-to-one -one interview preparation with Ed, uh, he got talking in depth about Alpha coming to an end and what happens next. Um, so Ed was asked whether he felt happy to give his life to God, and he said yes. So he just went for it, and he prayed a prayer of salvation then and there. 
Uh, it was very powerful, and Ed was very emotional. He talked about his son and how he, f uh, how he felt his son wanted to become a Christian too, and prayed for him as well. Um, Ed and his son came to church that Sunday, and they both loved it. Uh, Ed rang his job coach one evening to tell them that at the end of the last night of Alpha course, his son gave his life to Christ as well. He was so proud and so happy to be starting his journey of faith with his son. Praise God, yeah. Um, since becoming a Christian, he's been to church, and from talking with him, he is a different person. He's full of hope and love and life now, and he has also got a job interview as a train cleaner. He said that finding the job club and church was like finding a second family. Thanks, Mark. So that's just a really great example of the church being on the front foot, bringing practical solutions, spiritual transformation, and whole life transformation. And it's something that we as a church are involved in, in the south of Leeds and also in the north of Leeds as well. So that's just such an encouraging story. But as we hear, as we hear those statistics, as we hear those stories, um, we've got to ask a question. We've got to take a step back and go, okay, what's going on in my heart as I hear the statistics, as I hear the stories, as I hear, or as, as we don't have time to talk about all the stories of people who are still struggling and still in need? How do we react to it? As a church, how do we feel? How do we react when we hear just all those stories of poverty that are going on in the UK? What's going on, going on in our hearts? And that leads us to our second question, which is, what can we learn from Nehemiah's response to what's going on in his situation? In verse 6, it says, when I, Nehemiah, heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. Nehemiah hears about the injustice in his nation, and his response is to feel angry, very angry. And I think there are times when, as a church, that is to be our response. We should feel anger towards the injustice that we see or we hear about, because as the church, we are the body of Jesus. We're the body of Christ with the same mind as Christ. And he feels anger towards the evil and injustice that happens in the world. Jesus isn't passive. He's not indifferent. We wouldn't worship him if he was. He's actively angry at the injustice and the evil that he sees in the world and he wants to see change he wants to see change brought but I think there are three problems that we often face in feeling anger the first is we're just so often removed from those in need so it, it can all just feel a bit out there a bit distant a bit unreal to us the second thing is we can just feel so overwhelmed by the amount of information, even by the statistics that I've just presented about how bad things really are. And it can make us feel a bit helpless, a bit insignificant. And the worst thing is it could just make us feel really cynical that what's the point? Nothing's ever really going to change. And as the church, we're not to be cynics. We're to, be, we're to abound with hope through the Holy Spirit. And the third thing, and this is probably the most important one, is because of our sinful nature, the default stance of our hearts is not to care for the underprivileged. It's just not to engage. It's to protect ourselves, and it's not to open our hearts up to those who are in need. So how can we change? What are we meant to do? Well, you can't. You can't change your heart. I can't change my heart. We can't change our hearts. We're helpless to do this on our own. And that's the amazing news. We're not on our own. We can come to God and we can ask him, God, give us your heart for the poor and the underprivileged in the UK.
We can ask God to change our stony hearts, our selfish hearts, into hearts of flesh, hearts that live and breathe with the poor and the needy, hearts that are ready to feel the plight of the poor. So I want to extend a challenge to you this week. I want to say, why not commit some of your time with God to specifically praying to him and asking him to break your heart for the poor? And why not use one of your commutes to work to pray and ask God's heart for the people and the neighbourhoods that you're driving through or getting the train through? How does he feel towards them? And this is why it's a challenge and not the easy option out. It's a challenge because it's a very scary and it's a very vulnerable thing to pray because God actually might respond and he might change our hearts. He might actually say, okay, I will break your heart. I will let you see how I see these people. I will fill you with compassion and love and mercy and grace towards them. And that's scary because what do our lives look like if God breaks our heart for the poor? They change, they look different. It's less about us, it's more about giving out. So what are we to do? What are we to do if God responds to our prayer and changes our hearts, breaks our hearts for the poor? Well, Nehemiah gives us a great example of how we are to respond as God changes his heart. Nehemiah's heart's been changed by God, that's why he's very angry, and then we see what his response is. In verse seven, he says, he hears the charges and he says, I pondered them in my mind. So Nehemiah feels this anger, but he doesn't just jump straight into action. He doesn't just let his emotion control him because he recognizes that his anger could lead to rash action or false accusation. He could even make the problem a lot worse. He brings his godly reaction back to God in his heart. So the Hebrew word for mind is a much richer word than ours. Our understanding of it would be very logical and kind of thought through. The Hebrew word is more of a, the inner center of where you make your decisions. And he allows that anger to be channeled so that he comes to well thought through action. So he ponders, I think he prays, he brings it to God and then he acts. In verse, the next bit of verse seven, he says, and then I accused the nobles and the officials. I told them, you are charging your own people interest. So firstly, he brings this private charge against the people who are doing wrong. He goes to the source of the problem first. He doesn't just rant and rave about the problem to anyone who will listen. That's such an important thing for us to hear. The church cannot just be a talking shop for how bad things are. We can't just all get together and go, oh, isn't it terrible? Yeah, it's terrible but then never do anything. The book of James reminds us that we're to be doers of the word, not just hearers of the word. But for whatever reason, him bringing the private charge doesn't seem to be enough. So then he brings his charge publicly and he raises awareness of the issue with the whole community. Carrying on in verse seven, he says, so I called together a large meeting to deal with them. And as far as possible, uh, and said, as far as possible, we have bought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us. So in this moment, I think Nehemiah, is kind of, he's kind of becoming this advocate for change in the society. So when you think of Nehemiah here, think along the same lines as William Wilberforce, William Booth with the Salvation Army, John Kirkby at Christians Against Poverty. He's speaking to the nation about the extreme reality of the national situation and seeking to bring 
bring change. And he's reminding the people, look, in our history, we have just been slaves in exile to a foreign nation, but God has brought us back out of that slavery and brought us back to our own lands. And now what we're doing is we're selling our own people into slavery and exile all over again. Have we really not learned anything as a nation, is what he's saying. Nehemiah is challenging the people to wake up, to see what their situation looks like, to see what their actions are resulting in. And you see the, the result of Nehemiah's action in verse, the end of verse 8. It says they kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. Those who were guilty were convicted of their wrongdoing and their silence showed they had no excuse. That's a fascinating section that when God's people speak up, it it provides an opportunity for the Holy Spirit to bring conviction and change in the hearts of people. Nehemiah speaks up and the Holy Spirit brings conviction to those who were guilty. And Nehemiah doesn't just go, this is what's wrong. He also presents a plan for change. In verses 9 through 12, he suggests this is what the society should do from now on. He knows it's incomplete just to raise awareness of a problem. God is in the business of solving our problems, not just making us aware of them. This whole scene is a really powerful scene because the society, the nation, is being transformed. The problems the nation had cried out over at the beginning are being addressed. Justice is being administered. People are being held to account. And the nation is agreeing to work together to care for one another. Put simply, I think this is the kingdom of God coming to the nation of God at that time, and Nehemiah is bringing that about. And one of the roles of the church today in the UK is to be the voice of the marginalized and the oppressed, to seek justice, to seek societal change, to seek the kingdom of God coming in Leeds, in the UK, and globally today. And for some of you here, you're like, ah, you're speaking my language. Because God has put it on your heart to be an advocate for the poor and the oppressed in some specific ways, a little bit like Nehemiah is here. For some of you, it's your job, or it will be your job one day. You've, you've got a people group or a situation that you just feel on your heart, and you want to talk about it all the time, and you feel the anger that Nehemiah feels. Well, I think Nehemiah is a great and godly example to you of how to stand up for the poor and the oppressed. It involves feeling the anger. It involves bringing it to God in prayer. It involves bringing a charge, not being afraid to stand up to the people who are doing wrong. It involves raising awareness and letting the nation or different people groups know about what the situation is. And it involves presenting a solution. Not just saying this is terrible, but going, here's what I think we can do about it. Here's what I feel God would say about it. And I've asked um, Emily Fullerton to come up and share for a couple of minutes as somebody who feels that kind of burden herself and how that's kind of worked itself through in her life. So, um Um, Yeah, so I'm just going to share a bit of um, my story and my heart um, with you. Um, I got to start back um, from being a child. I was brought up in a Christian home where I was made to feel very aware of the world, the the fact, like what Dave's talked about, about church, uh, caring for the marginalised. My parents encouraged me to engage with that. We had people stay with us and 
we were a very open-minded family to going and visiting different projects. And that was really instilled in me um, from a young age. And I guess as an adult, um, the more I've chosen to engage in that, um, the more compassion I've felt um, for myself. And it's become very much um, my own wanting and my own burden. Um, so uh, after I went to, uh, throughout uni, I um, volunteered with refugees and I just sort of fell into um, that. It wasn't like God came out of the sky and said, work with refugees. I just saw the opportunity and started volunteering and found that I enjoyed it. Um, and it ticked a few of the things that um, the burden that I was carrying. Um, so after university, I looked for a job um, and I got one in a detention centre just next to Gatwick Airport um, as a support worker. Um, this was a really good job um, for me in that it got me to work with asylum seekers and refugees. But it was really, really hard because it, it um, meant I had to see them at a place where I was pretty powerless. <laughs> to change their life um, and they had no power either to change theirs. They were had three days in this detention centre and then they were being sent back to where they came from. Um, and there was one particular woman that I worked with from Gambia and she had a two-year-old son and she was so desperate and she basically got to the point of thinking, I can't, it's better for me to kill myself um, and let my two-year-old stay in the UK than for us to be sent back where we'll, we'll just both be killed. So, so yeah. Um, and then... So yeah, so I was working with this lady who had come to the conclusion it would be better to take her own life um, than be sent back so that her son could stay. And she tried to do this when me and her two-year-old son were in the room with her. Um, and that was really hard. And it was hard to see where God was in that situation because he didn't, he didn't break through and um, come and rescue them. Um, it was hard. Um, and I remember on the way home from one of my shifts, um, putting a Hillsong CD on um, and it was the song Hosanna and the lyrics are um, break my heart for what breaks yours everything I am for your kingdom's cause um, and I just found myself thinking how how can I sing this um, I can't cope with this anymore I want to go and work in Morrison's or something I can't I can't cope um, with this injustice these people that they've come from their country because they're going to be killed or you know tortured and then our government treats them this way and it was just so hard to um, hold on to that but um, I think at that point was when God broke my heart for refugees and asylum seekers and just it made me think if if my heart feels like this then what does God's heart feel like um, and although it is overwhelming rather than running away from it it's my duty and responsibility to work with that and see what difference I can make. Um, and that comes directly from the Bible, I think, for all of us, like to care for the marginalised, but yeah, also to individuals um, who might feel specific groups of people. Um, and so, yeah, I've since that point, I've been amazed at God's um, 
how he's opened doors for me to work um, with asylum seekers. So when I moved up north um, for love, um, God <laughs> um, opened a job opportunity for me, which was at the, the bottom rung of a charity as a support worker, um, which was great. And although really through really difficult circumstances, I found my way um, to have the privileged position of leading that charity and being able to make decisions that um, have had God involved, you know, it wasn't a Christian charity and to try and bring God more into that charity. And I've just been amazed at how God has opened the doors to help me to be like his hands and feet in serving um, refugees. Um, so yeah, so I guess um, I've spoken a lot about hopeless situations and having to trust in God in those times. And there are still times now where I come home and I can't handle that um, overwhelming sense of injustice and I feel angry. Um, and I think it is just about trying to trust in God ultimately that he has these people in his hands, that his heart breaks for them. Um, and we have to do something and we have to pray. Um, like Dave said, it's not just about talking about what we're gonna do at church, but there's so much you can do, like buying a can of food or whatever, that could, you know, that helps, it all helps. Um, but yeah, but also praying. Um, yeah, thanks. So let's take that, uh, what Emily said, and I just want to end by looking at what does this mean for us today? Because the worst thing that happens is you walk out of here just feeling guilty. And that, I, don't feel like that's, I don't feel like that's what's coming across. I don't feel like that's what's in the room. I want you to go away feeling hope-filled, but also challenged. Hope-filled that our God is so great and so mighty that he's able to handle these things. He's the shoulders on which the whole world can be carried, as uh, Mark brought before, the, the, government, the government of the world will be on his shoulders, on Jesus' shoulders. He carries the weight, but he enables us to carry some of the weight alongside him. So what does it mean for us today? Well, as we've kind of been looking at this as we've gone through the story, but let me quickly summarise what our approach is to be. The first is, we've got to be a people with open eyes, open ears, and open hearts to the plight of the poor and the oppressed. We need to be asking God to give us his heart and increase measure for those people that were already around, those people who live next to us, those people that we work with. I know for some of us, we work in really, really challenging environments. So we work with the poor and the underprivileged every single day, but we need to work there with God's heart for them. And so I really encourage you, spend some time this week praying, asking God, give me your heart for the poor. I'd really encourage you as well in mission groups to spend a bit of time praying and hearing what God has to say for you as a group. There's nothing quite as powerful as a group collectively having their hearts broken by God for the poor. And maybe he'll speak to your group about areas that you can serve uh, together serve in the city of Leeds. The second thing is I think we need to be a people, especially in the north, who recognise what uh, everything that we have, God has given us, he's blessed us with, and he might be asking us to use some of those blessings to bring change in, uh, in the lives of the people. And Nehemiah was a man of wealth and influence, and we see him, he uses those two things to bring change. And so again, I want you to pray and ask God, 
what do I have? What have you given me that I can use to bless and care for the underprivileged? So it might be money, it might be time, it might be opening your home, it might be influence within the city or the workplace. Um, as I was praying beforehand, I think uh, God will answer that prayer in some strange and surprising ways for some people. So I'd really encourage you to pray along that line. I just want to share a story. Um, uh, it's actually Jess's story. And um, Jess is a pediatric oncologist, which basically means she works with children with cancer. So she's working with really poor and underprivileged kids in terms of their health. And she has this amazing thing that she does. When she first meets a child that she's going to be working with, she ends her time with them by just placing her hands on their feet. She doesn't really say anything about what she's doing, but in her heart, she's praying for them. And she's replicating what Jesus did when he washed the feet of his disciples just before he gave his life for them. Uh, Sometimes the patient will ask what she's doing, sometimes they don't. Um, But it's her way of keeping the plight of the poor close to her heart and bringing God into the situation. It's something so simple, but it's something that she does day in, day out, and it is so powerful. You should ask Jess some of the stories that she's seen kind of through her time of working with kids with cancer and how God has moved in miraculous ways. And I just want to encourage you, what are the simple but powerful things that you can do with the people that maybe you're working with or that you're kind of living next door to day in, day out? And lastly, we're to be a church, we're to build a church, sorry, that is on the front foot and caring for the underprivileged. For the North Gathering right now, I really do believe that does mean corporate prayer for us. We need to be hearing what God is, um, what opportunities God is giving us uh, in this part of the city to care for the poor and the underprivileged. So I would love you to be praying in mission groups, in discipleship triplets, coming along to the Vine prayer meeting where where we'll be praying about this as well. And I'd love to hear from you guys what you feel like God is saying for us us as a gathering in terms of ways that we can uh, we can care for the poor in this part of the city to end let's just return to nehemiah we haven't looked at the whole chapter but what you see is nehemiah's action is bookended with prayer he prays through his anger in verse 6 and he ends in verse 19 with prayer after this whole situation and he prays remember me with favor my god for all i've done for these people nehemiah asks god for favor He basically is asking for the goodness and the grace of God to be extended to him. We see that this has been the reason for everything that he has done for his nation. It's through the outpouring of God's goodness and grace to him that he's reacted as he did and that he responds as he did. And it's the same for us. It's through the outpouring of God's grace towards us that our hearts are changed. It's through understanding that when we came to God, we brought nothing. We bring nothing to God, and yet out of his grace and mercy, he pours riches into our lives. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, rich beyond measure in heaven, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Christ gave up everything, became nothing, so that we could be so rich and blessed in our relationship with him. As we pray and ask God for his heart, I think he will give us his heart, but he will also humble us. We'll come before the foot of the cross and recognize that there's no richness or privilege that we have that is there by our own merit. It's a blessing from God that he's given us. And as we stand and look before the cross, we will realize that it's the great leveler of humanity, that all of humanity comes before the cross on the same playing field. And so everything that God has given us on top of Jesus is a blessing that we can use to bring change in this nation and in this city. Can we pray just to finish?
Heavenly Father, we come before you and we recognise that we are so weak in this area. We're in so uh, much need of you. And Lord, I just pray that you would come by your spirit now and begin to break our hearts for the poor and the underprivileged. Lord, I pray that you would continue to break the hearts for those people who work day in, day out in difficult situations with people who are in such great need. I pray that you would give them compassion now in the name of Jesus to see those people as you see them. Lord, I pray as a gathering you would come and you'd break our hearts for the, the city of Leeds, the north of this city. I pray that you'd come and speak to us about ways that we can serve. I pray that you'd give us fresh eyes to see the reality that people live in day in, day out. Lord God, we need to be humbled before you. And we pray by your spirit you would come and do that now. And you would also remind us that you are a great, merciful, sovereign, beautiful God. That your heart breaks for the poor, but you are so strong that you're able to carry this all on your shoulders. We can come to you and say that you give us hope. You give us hope that things can be changed in this nation. And we praise you for that, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.